Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The big news of the day, certainly China and the U.S. The other big news is Argentina with the peso continuing to sell off versus uh, the dollar currently at its lowest, weakest level on record after the surprise defeat of Mauricio Macri, the current president, yesterday. And questions about who will take his place, the fact that uh, Christina Kirchner could be coming back to power. Joining us now to talk about how investors have to view all this is Paul Greer. He's a portfolio manager focusing on emerging markets debt and FX at Fidelity International. He's joining us from our London studios. Paul, thank you so much for being with me today. My main question is, how much is Argentina a specific story about a country that has defaulted many times on its debt? And how much does this reflect true risk in emerging markets that is currently mispriced by debt investors? Hi, Lisa. Um, Yeah, I, I guess with Argentina, you know, clearly, it's been the, the, the story of the week. Uh, I think the nature of the story is quite idiosyncratic in many ways. We had a very specific primary vote over the weekend, which you know clearly had an adverse result for investors in Argentinian debt and, and currency. And investors have, have voted with their feet. You know, we've seen a, a pretty sharp sell-off in, in bonds and, and in currency markets. I think there's been a little bit of contagion, certainly yesterday, a little bit today, into the rest of emerging markets. I think it's you know maybe quite difficult for investors to exit the Argentinian market at the moment. It's it's quite a liquid, it's under a lot of pressure. But I think from here on, with every passing day, I, I think for the rest of emerging markets in terms of contagion, we'll probably see a reduced impact uh, in terms of the spillover into the rest of the market. Clearly, it's going to remain topical and thematic for Argentina specifically, uh, but I think we've probably seen the peak for the rest of EM in terms of contagion. Paul, what is the node of contagion that we should be looking at? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch like, that. In other words, what, how, how is the contagion expressing itself? Is it just that investors, if they can't get rid of Argentinian assets, they're simply selling other high beta emerging market securities? Is that sort of uh, the way it's expressed? Or is it just that you have negative news in a big emerging market or one that uh, a lot of people own, and then certain retail investors say, you know what, I'm not going to go any into EM or I'm going to yank some funds from my EM ETF? I, I think it's exactly that. I mean, I mean, the two biggest risks with Argentina right throughout this year have always been politics uh, and positioning. And on the latter issue, you know, Argentinian debt and, and currency, you know, it has been a popular crowded market in many ways with investors. Clearly, there's been a big drawdown in terms of the performance that's hit, uh, you know, investors' funds. And we've seen a little bit of de-risking in other markets. It's been most acute in Latin America, particularly on the FX side, I would say. You know, it's very difficult to sell the Argentinian peso at the minute. Liquidity is quite poor. So, you know, certainly yesterday we saw currencies like the Mexican peso, you know, Brazilian real, Chile, Colombia, etc., come under pressure as investors really look for an option somehow to hedge the risk in Argentina. I think it worked yesterday, you know, maybe a little bit today, but uh, with each passing day, I think the Argentinian story will become increasingly idiosyncratic and it will be harder to hedge it 
using you know other countries and, and, and other markets. Earlier this year, you wrote a column for the Financial Times where you said that emerging markets uh, are in a sweet spot, and certainly that came to fruition in returns with emerging markets debt outperforming U.S. riskier securities. I'm wondering, from your perspective, is that sweet spot over? Have we uh, sort of closed that out? <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's quite over. Uh, I mean, if you look at the returns year to date, you know, sovereign external debt, you know, we're up 12.5%. Local currency markets were up 8%. I, I think probably the lion's share of the returns have already come and gone so far in, in emerging markets this year. But between now and year end, we still think there'll be incremental positive returns for, for EM debt investors. I mean, it's it, it's not a perfect asset class. We've seen this you know horrible story in Argentina over the weekend. You know, EM is still suffering from softening global growth. We've still got the threat of you know U.S. trying to cheat trade tariffs, etc. But you know, there's there's been lots of parallels with with last year. You know, the big sell-off in EM in in summer 2018. But there are also some notable differences. You know, the interest rate environment globally is a lot more favorable this year. You know, we've seen the, the, the Fed and, and, and other central banks cut interest rates. So, you know, yields have been falling generally in, in the G10 world. Investors have been looking towards emerging markets as somewhere uh, that has an attractive yield uh, and a spread that, that will offer them uh, them some returns. So uh, I don't think the sweet story is, the, the sweet spot is, is quite over. You know, we're also seeing stimulus from the Chinese authorities as well. But I, I think probably most of the returns for 2019 have already been witnessed. Yeah, talking about picking up some yield in emerging markets, Argentinian 100-year bonds currently almost yield 14%. Are you buying? Uh, we're not buying now. Uh, we think it pays to be cautious in the near term. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the two biggest risks this year in Argentina for us were really politics and positioning. Uh, and politics has clearly played out with the primary result on Sunday. But the positioning overhang, that technical, is, is still quite awkward for investors. It's been crowded. It's been a popular trade. I think the market still needs to find uh, a balancing clearing level for, for both bonds uh, and for currencies. So we think that positioning and technical angle will continue to, to weigh in Argentina in, in the short term. Um, more medium term, it, it does offer you know an interesting opportunity. The bonds, I guess, are down you know 25, 30 points in the last kind of one and a half days. We're very quickly moving towards a scenario where a default is is you know getting towards 100% priced in by the market with you know bonds trading below 50 cents in the dollar today. Yeah. So you know a, a lot of bad news has been priced in. We think in the near term, bonds are probably at risk of, of drifting further lower. Um, but, you know, as we get down to the 40s and some of these Argentinian dollar bonds and you start to think about recovery values and, and kind of the assets that the country has, I think, you know, over the medium term, it, it could be an interesting opportunity, but, but certainly not in the short term. Where else are you buying just quickly? 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, our, our highest conviction in EM debt at the minute is on the local currency side. You know, inflation and growth has been falling in, in a number of countries, and, and many markets have got, you know, steep yield curves and, and pretty attractive real yields. So we really like local currency bonds in, you know, countries like China, 
Russia, Indonesia, Serbia, Peru, etc. A lot of these countries were expecting to see more interest rate cuts from central banks. And we think the risk premium is, is pretty attractive, even at these levels. Paul Greer, thank you so much for spending the time. Wonderful speaking with you. Paul Greer is Portfolio Manager focusing on emerging markets, debt, and FX. For Fidelity International, joining us from our London studios. How do you trade this market? The key question facing so many portfolio managers today. We're going to pose that question to Grady Burkett. He's a portfolio manager at Diamond Hill Capital Management, joining us here in our interactive broker studio. So Grady, one key question here as markets get whipsawed, who's trading? Are you out there actively trading these headlines? Thanks for having me. Uh, We're not. So we take a, a strategic approach to the portfolio construction. Uh, we, my team and I meet uh, on, a, on a scheduled basis to decide what we want to buy and what we want to sell. And it's really based on valuation and our expectations for future fundamentals of each business. So a day like today, you, it's unlikely that you'd see us make any, any big changes, if, if any changes at all. So Diamond Hill Capital Management overseeing $23 billion normally in Columbus, Ohio. Grady, I'm wondering if you're saying, and so many people are saying, we're not trading this. In fact, we're trading less. Are you trading less due to some of the geopolitical uncertainty and the backdrop of the trade tensions? Well, if we, we would trade less if we don't see relative valuation opportunities. If we saw relative valuation opportunities emerge as a result of these issues, then we might allocate more. So for instance, if we saw China become relatively attractive compared to Europe or some of the other markets, we might start to allocate more to China. Right now, we have a larger allocation to the UK because for a couple of years now, we've, we've felt that the valuations in the UK are attractive. But on a day-to-day basis, we're going we're gonna to step back and breathe and, uh, and look and make sure that we're comfortable buying more of the businesses that we own as they get cheaper. So when did you start buying UK? Oh, we started. We we we've we've always allocated to the UK since the fund's inception. Um, but we 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 I'd say we increased the weight over time right after the initial uh, vote to uh, to leave the European Union. And how how are you accessing it with bonds, stocks? So we're so in the international fund, we're all equity. All equity. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you mentioned in a note recently was it's reasonable to expect seven to nine percent annualized returns for global equities over the next 10 years. I'm wondering how that can be given the fact that so much of the growth has already been front loaded, priced in and sort of juiced by the central banks. Do you ever get pushback on that uh, that that yield target? Uh, I just did from one of my colleagues when I presented it to you. Uh, <laughs> All right, so what, what did you say? Well, so my answer is right now, when I look at our portfolio and I'm using our portfolio as a proxy for, for global equities uh, because we are a global portfolio, uh, the dividend yield right now is about 2.6%. Uh, I think the valuations are reasonable. Now, some, some markets are more, uh, valuations are more stretched than others. I would argue the U.S. is one of the more stretched markets in terms of just statistical valuation. Um, but I think that you get 3% uh, uh, real GDP growth, and you get a couple percentage points of earnings growth on top of that through share buybacks and operating efficiencies. So you've got 5% on the, on the earnings growth potential, 
and then you've got another two two point six percent dividend yield. So that's that's right at eight percent. The that's idea the of point. predicting out ten years at a time of you know tweets and things moving uh, really quickly, depending on the headline of the day is mind-boggling, and I wonder how sensitive your uh, returns prediction is to a trade deal or some sort of kind of global order staying the same way that it is right now. So again, this is this is my base case, and so there certainly are tails around that, and you could see return, and we have seen historical returns be much higher and much lower. Um, I think that if you get a, a negative sentiment in the market that compresses valuations, then our forward 10-year return would be higher, and if you get positive uh, sentiment that causes valuations to stretch further than they are, are today, then I would expect my return expectations to go down. But on a 10-year basis, it's more about the current dividend yield and earnings growth expectations. Do you expect a recession anytime soon? I think within the 10-year time frame that I mentioned, All there'll right. be a recession. Well, yes, but in the, next, in, the next, in the next year, uh, 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 potentially earnings, some earnings pressure, but a, but a true recession, global recession, I, I don't personally see it. What about emerging markets? Uh, I think emerging markets can be attractive. The way that we typically access that is through developed market companies that have strong exposure to emerging markets. So like AB InBev, uh, Ashmore, which is a UK asset manager that's emerging market debt manager, um, Diageo. And so we understand that we're out on the ground in emerging markets as, as a team. So we want to access companies with good management teams who have people on the ground who understand those markets well. Any areas you're absolutely avoiding? Well, um, fortunately, we haven't been allocated to Argentina on a direct basis, although we do have exposure through Copa Airlines. They have 7% of their revenue from Argentina. Um, any market where we see very high inflation and unstable political environments, uh, we tend to, tend to avoid. Grady Burkett, thank you so much for being here. Grady Burkett is Portfolio Manager at Diamond Hill Capital Management, overseeing $23 billion, uh, joining us here in New York. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Max Neeson. Uh, there have been recent proposals out of the Trump administration's headquarters that perhaps the way to lower prices on prescription drugs in the United States is simply to import drugs from Canada. Can you just give us a little bit more about the proposal? Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically a, a two-part proposal, one that, that states and wholesalers and pharmacies can apply to HHS to uh, basically give them a proposal for importing certain subsets of drugs uh, from Canada, which has lower prices than we do, if they can prove that it's going to be safe for consumers for them to do so. The other one, which is a little bit more puzzling, is that uh, drug makers would be able to import their own medicines from another country. That part I basically ignore because it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but um, the issue, as always with drug pricing, is that although this sounds good, you know, you have lower prices in another country. If you bring those drugs in, it's good for consumers. It, it brings in competition. It brings the price down. But uh, it, it's it's more complicated because in order to actually do this, you need Canadian wholesalers and the government of Canada to cooperate, and they have no incentive whatsoever to do so. Why not? More business, more profits. Uh, because they depend on, on drug makers to actually provide those medicines. And the the price differential in the U.S. is basically the most valuable thing in the world for the pharmaceutical industry. The fact that they can charge higher prices here, they will do whatever they can to preserve it. And if that means basically cutting off uh, drug supply for Canadian wholesalers that, that start importing drugs into the United States, they may very well do so. Um, so, you know, they, it really relies on drug makers to cooperate in a scheme that would 
cost them uh, money in the long run, and I don't, I don't expect them to do that. Yeah, Max, here's what I'm struggling with. We have been talking about prescription drug prices for decades, right? I mean, this has been an issue for a really long time. Why has there been no material progress on coming up with some way to lower drug prices while continuing to encourage uh, innovation within the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, I, I think it's because you, there's such a lobby on the second part of that thing where where it's become sort of this perceived wisdom for, for a lot of politicians that anything you do to to bring down drug prices is going to irrevocably and harmfully impact innovation. Um, the reality is, is probably something a little bit different. And, and the problem is, in order to actually bring prices down, you really do have to make big structural change. You need to do what every other developed country in the world does, which is make drug approval conditional on and pricing conditional on the value it brings to patients, as opposed to the system we have right now where negotiating power is so fragmented that 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 sort of fundamental market action, the the real competition, only happens in limited ways and is specifically prohibited from happening in certain government programs. So it's just a mess, and there has to be a kind of a fundamental shift in in mindset and ambition uh, that's just not happening right now. Max, when I talk to a lot of investment managers right now, they say that because of the trade wars, because of what's going on with geopolitical uncertainty, they are piling into healthcare shares in the United States because they see that as immune to some of these tensions and immune to a potential downturn. People still have to spend on their health care. Do you think that the outlook for healthcare companies right now is pretty positive or do you think that perhaps people are overlooking other issues that are facing some of these uh, companies? I, I think in the near to midterm and, and kind of in a general macro sense, they're, they're probably right in the sense that we're not going to see a significant health reform, which is kind of the health or drug price reform, which is the re- only real threat to that sort of thesis, uh, at least until, you know, the ne- after the next election. And who knows that how that's going to go in the first place. Um, you know, the, the things that we're seeing out of the Senate, and out of Congress right now would definitely have an impact on, on drug makers and potentially on providers as well, speaking about um, basically an effort to reform how Medicare pays for drugs and uh, to crimp surprise bills from, from hospitals. But those are all sort of incremental changes, especially when compared to the more ambitious reform efforts you're, you're just seeing proposed by, by Democrats that are running for president. Um, in order to, to kind of pass the those, those larger efforts at reform, they'd basically have to throw put aside any other political priority and also uh, have a very specific outcome in, in Congress as well in the next year's elections. So they, they may not be too far off. It, it's cynical, but, but they may be right. And just real quick here, in general, is the idea that healthcare uh, companies are somewhat recession immune. Is that accurate? Uh, it, it historically has been the case. You know, uh, as, as you said, you know, people are going to get sick no matter what. Uh, people are going to have to pay for health care no matter what. And at the end of the day, there, there are these sort of safety net programs that even if people do lose their jobs or, or lose some part of discretionary income, uh, they're, they're going to fall back on those. There, there is at the margin an impact. You know, there's more uncompensated care. People choose to, you know, not fill prescriptions that they might 
otherwise feel if they they were seeing you know they had jobs that they were seeing wage growth but you know relative to to other parts of the economy when when things go badly uh, healthcare does does generally turn out to be a lot safer Max Neeson thank you so much for being with us today Max Neeson is biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion read all his columns they're fantastic uh, you can read them at OPIN go on the Bloomberg or you can read them at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Right now, we are talking so much about the shift from active fund management to passive fund management at a time of index outperformance. But there really is a, a more important question, which is, what's behind this shift? And joining us now, Michelle Seitz. She's chairman and chief executive officer of Russell Investments, which oversees $290 billion of assets. Uh, Michelle joins us here in our 1130 studios, our interactive broker studios. Michelle, I want to pose this to you. Because because I think it's more important to view this shift in light of the drivers than it is the shift itself. So what do you think is behind the move? Right, well, uh, throughout my career, but also at Russell Investments, you know, the touchstone always is the clients. And whatever the client's problems are, are where the industry is going to go. And so at the moment, the problem is more people are concerned about going broke than they are dying. We're living longer and we have a massive underfunding of pension plans, DB plans are being frozen or shut down, going to DC. So you have this massive shift from institutions providing for retirements to individuals having to provide for their own retirements. That is driving down in a low return environment, driving down the costs of what we've all we all used to do. And so that is a byproduct, passive to active active from passive, et cetera, is a byproduct of really trying to solve a root problem, which is the retirement crisis. So some people would turn that on its head and say, as people get more aware of the income that they get, they become more aware of the fees they're paying out. And because they're not able to necessarily prove outperformance, some of these active funds, uh, investors are fleeing. Do you think that that narrative is accurate? That simply put, yes, as people get more focused on the fact that they've got to make money on their money, they realize that the human managers aren't aren't doing the job. Yeah, no, that's that's a very accurate depiction as well. Uh, the focus is increasingly on the returns that are needed in order for people to be able to retire well. And so as the focus goes on that, as returns are lower and the percent of the return that we're taking in fees collectively as an, as an industry needs to go down, right? When you have double digit returns and the average fee is 1% or whatever it might be, that's one thing. When you have single digit returns and it's still 1%, that's a very different thing. So what do you advise clients as the sort of uh, risk reward factor becomes so tenuous where people are less worried about dying than they are about just making enough money to survive for the 30 years after their retirement? How do you advise clients this late in the credit cycle? Right. Well, well, there's a structural uh, change going on in the industry, which is this gap uh, and the need to be focused on outcomes and solutions that are tailored to individuals. And then there's the amplification of the cyclical, which is what you're talking about, which, which is the this long in the cycle, there's going to be risk to returns as well. So that's an amplification, but the structural problem will still be here. And so 
focus is first and foremost on the liability that you're trying to cover. And so our work with our clients through intermediaries and through advisors is to make sure that people understand the liability, how to get there cost effectively, and how to make sure that they measure not a benchmark relative performance. You can't retire on a benchmark. You have to retire on absolute returns. That's the key focus. We're speaking with Michelle Seitz, chairman and CEO of Russell Investments, overseeing $290 billion in assets. We were talking about the expected return rate that individual investors should target. And I think it's important when you talk about the mix between stocks and bonds and how much risk to take on. What is appropriate for individuals to expect over the next 10 years? Right. Well, I love this question uh, because we're, we're all different. And target date funds, which were a great invention and uh, have been a great default option, assume that everyone at the same age is exactly the same and should have the same target return. We believe that that's not not effective, not enough. It's effective, uh, but not enough. And so what we're uh, espousing and really putting in implementation mode is personalized retirement accounts where we take every data point that we can for you and virtually create many defined benefit plans for each individual. How, how old you are, how long you're going to work, what your gender is, what your salary is, what your income needs are. And so that it's less about a target return, it's more about customizing around your unique your unique attributes and what the outcome is that you need. How far are we in the shift from active to passive? I mean, how far in the transformation? Um, Well, first of all, we, we do believe that active is a critical part of the ecosystem of capital markets. So we believe in active. Um, we do need to deliver active more consistent for a value price point that's, uh, in line with the value derived for the clients. So agreed on all of that. Uh, but but I would say there have been a lot of studies. I don't know that 50-50 is uh, the exact right balance. It could be uh, that the majority of investing is done through index and systematic and factor investing. Um, but it's not it's not ever going to stamp out the value that active brings to the equation. Just real quick here, I, I'm just trying to uh, understand going forward what the next step is in terms of the evolution of the asset management industry. I mean, what's sort of the next thing we should be talking about? Yeah, so I, I think absolutely the next shift. It's a major pivot. The pivot is from uh, managing money uh, primarily for institutions to making sure that we're managing money for the end individual so that we can do mass customization at scale and it's much more tailored. The second major pivot is to alternative asset classes. Michelle Seitz, Chairman and CEO of Russell Investments, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.